0: Hello and welcome back to New Books in History, the channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Sam Bluxen, and I'm here today with Dr. Zachary Lechner to discuss his book, The South of the Mind. Dr. Lechner looks at how Southern whiteness was imagined, portrayed, and discussed between 1960 and 1980 in the United States. He argues that certain narratives about Southern whiteness became increasingly attractive around the country, partly as a way to move past the racial traumas of the 1960s, but also to try to restore white American masculinity at a time when it seemed uniquely threatened. Uh, Dr. Lechner, welcome to the New Books Network. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Yes, uh, I'm an assistant professor of history at Thomas Nelson Community College in Hampton, Virginia. And I've taught in a few different places. Uh, prior to that, I taught full time at a kind uh, of magnet high school, um, elite high school in uh, Durham, North Carolina. And then I did the adjunct route for uh, for several years while I was uh, working on my on my PhD. But uh, I I did receive my PhD from Temple University hmm. in Philadelphia. Um, I took my MA at Purdue University in West Lafayette, uh, Indiana. And if we want to go all the way back to uh, undergraduate, uh, I took an undergraduate degree at uh, Truman State University in uh, Northeast uh, Missouri.
0: And what led you to this project, which is South of the Mind?
1: I was uh, someone who was always fascinated by the American Civil War, you know, so I was probably hmm. part of that generation of, uh, you know, young people, you know, raised on Ken Burns, you know, <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, watched I guess, the Civil yeah. War with great interest and watched it many times afterwards. And, you know, as I got into academia, as I got into grad school, I, I, I actually I kind of thought, uh, even at that time, you know, the, the Civil War, wow, that's a, that's a topic that a lot of people write on, and uh, that's a really... Really crowded field, um, so of course I moved into post World War II twentieth century history, and you know, and then totally got rid of that, you know, that uh, that problem, of course. But uh, but no, <laughs> in reality, um, I, I was I realized I didn't really necessarily want to study the Civil War, but I was very interested in the South, mm-hmm. and then as I got into some class, taking classes at Purdue University, particularly with uh, with Nancy Gabe, and who later later became my advisor. Um, I just I realized that oh you you can write about popular culture you can you can do that I didn't really realize that was a that was a thing until I until I got into graduate school and so I guess this project kind of came out of a desire to combine both of those interests like a his an interest in the history of the South and in an interest in popular culture um, film you know music television uh, books um, etc so it's really just kind of a Frankensteining together of, of, of interest that that's led me to this uh, to this project
0: and what was the research process like for this i mean i'm assuming it wasn't just sitting around watching andy griffith and listening to the allman brothers
1: well there was that there was that um you know and it's always nice uh you know to uh there's any you know graduate you know, well I know there's many graduate students listening but it's always nice you know if you can use research money to buy CDs you know because that's that's obviously something that's uh, <laughs> will be helpful for the project and then uh, you know you don't have to give those back at the at the end so Temple didn't ask for all my Leonard Skinner records um, so yeah I mean it, it was some of that I mean it was it was you know watching Andy Griffiths um, the Beverly Hillbillies um, you know the, watching films and you know taking you know notes on films. Uh, but the, you know, it was also just a lot of just kind of traditional type research, you know, so looking at a lot of popular magazines, you know, going through, you know, the starting, you know, like with the New York times and, you know, what, what are they, what are they saying about the South, you know? And that, that was kind of a difficult thing because, um, first of all, South as a search term is a little bit problematic. Um, Southernness Mm -hmm. as a search term is kind of non-existent. Um, And so sometimes I felt like when I was doing the research that, um, you know, I was uh, trying to find a South that was both kind of everywhere and nowhere at at the same time. Um, So I was looking at, you know, traditional sources, popular culture sources, traditional printed sources, um, popular culture sources, and then also I did some some archival research as well. So I, I spent some time both at the Jimmy Carter Library in Atlanta and at the Gerald Ford uh, Library in Ann Arbor, Michigan, um, where I, I I did research for the, my chapter on the, the 1976 campaign, and particularly the role of Carter's southernness in that in that campaign, how he how he tried to use it as a you know as a strategy to to help him appeal. To, to voters and uh, that, that was definitely a challenge uh, you know trying to figure out to what extent say just in that instance you know southerness did affect the, the campaign because I think you know there was a lot of uh, anti-southern bias against Carter but it was often under the surface you know and uh, you know it, it was difficult to try to tease out from the, from the historical record sometimes so you just kind of had to you know look at a lot of net broadly and look at a lot of different stuff and, you know, end up wasting your time on, on, you know, in a lot of material that you ended up not using. Um, but you know, it, it, that happens with every project. So um, it, uh, it, 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 uh, it was just, I think it was just a unique challenge though of trying to, um, trying to identify something, you know, Southernness that is kind of somewhat, you um, I don't know, some nebulous. I guess like it's kind of hard to kind of put your put your finger on sometimes. Um, so uh, yeah, I just had to work through that, and it's probably why it took me a long time to <laughs> to finally complete complete the project because um, it just it was a it was a long a long search. So for
0: somebody unfamiliar with this particular subject, how would you describe um, what your argument is in South of the Mind?
1: Well, I argue that the that the South, in particular the the White South, um, not not always, but very often in a kind of rural incarnation, served as a unlikely savior, really, um, in the minds of of, of of a number of Americans, not just Southerners, but non Southerners as as well, and a savior from really the just generally speaking. The anxieties and the difficulties of 1960s and 1970s America, and so these difficulties, these problems, were just were it's just there's a whole host of them. And um, you know, as m- many of your listeners will will know this already. You know, so you know, discord uh, relating to race, uh, discord relating to the Vietnam War. You know, concerns about um, consumer culture. You know, kind of sapping the sapping the brains of of America's uh, youth. Um, The malaise of suburbanization, um, conformity, right? In general, the problems can be classified um, under a term that the pop sociologist Vance Packard used in a 1972 book called The Nation of Strangers, in which he, you know, know, posited that Americans were kind of losing connection with each other. And that word is rootlessness. So, in a sense, there's this fear of overriding fear of rootlessness in 1960s, 1970s uh, America that the White South, which is generally presented as or often presented as a as a bulwark of traditionalism um, and stability and you know familialism uh, to use the word that's uh, 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 invoked by the creator of the the, the rural uh, Southern TV sitcom The Waltons, um, that you know, the, the white South is, is this kind of, this savior. Um, uh, it's going to, it's going to, you know, bring the, the nation out of its funk. Now, well, obviously, I don't know if, don't know if on a the conscious end. level, people, you know, necessarily are, are thinking like, okay, well, if I just, you know, listen to enough Allman Brothers records, you know, and if I just vote for Jimmy Carter that, you know, that the southernness will wash over me and everything will be fine in the nation. I mean, that's not, I think, a thought that people that people have. But underneath the embrace of all of these kind of aspects of white southernness and kind of positive imaginings of white southernness, there is definitely that inclination. The sense that that the white South has somehow preserved something that other Americans have 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 abandoned, and mm. so if we kind of concentrate, if we kind of focus on what the white South is doing, whether it be uh, issues related to even race, which might be kind of surprising to us, um, or issues related to um, you know how people connect with one another uh, in terms of you know, like their family relations or or their uh, connection to the land, that you know that that there seems to be kind of a a potential for the white South providing a a an avenue out of these myriad of difficulties that Americans are trying to sort out in the sixties and the seventies. Are there actual solutions for these problems or really clearly (laughs) discernible solutions that, 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 that can be arrived at? Mm, Maybe not. And so the South of the mind though, functions as a kind of a a fantasy of, of Americans seeing themselves out of these otherwise kind of insoluble problems.
0: So your first chapter, um, you, you get to look at some interesting materials, but you're also laying the groundwork of um, frameworks of understanding the South, sort of different Southern narratives that emerged in the early 1960s. What are you looking at here?
1: Well, I've, there's, there's three main narratives that, that, that as you, uh, you reference there. One is the, the vicious South. One is the changing South. And three is the down home south. So these are these are not necessarily t- terms that are that are being used at the time. These are these are terms of my my own creation, um, mm-hmm. you know, with the hopes that that someday people who are smarter than me will will use them, you know, and, and act like they're actual real things, you know. But you know you know how that goes. But mm-hmm. but they are they are real in the sense that they they capture um, you know something very true about the 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 varied. Um, and often very diametrically opposed um, views of the, of the South. And I'm focusing here really on, in the first chapter, on the 1960s civil rights movement, okay? civil rights movement era. Okay? So it's not just a, a chapter about the movement, but about kind of the era in which civil rights is um, kind of at its, at its peak, um, particularly the black civil rights movement is really what I'm focused on in the South. So the, the vicious South, this is, in some ways, kind of the most uh, familiar of the um, narratives about the South. So this isn't this is a concept that says the South, and in generally meaning the white South, is a uniquely uh, bigoted, you know, racist uh, place, um, just unapologetically so. It is everything that the rest of America is not okay it is the worst of america so the vicious south functions really as as the american other you know the kind of the ugly redheaded stepchild of american society you know so it's like we every everything that's wrong with america you know has its own special place to go to and that place is the south okay and it's embodied in the behavior of white southerners and how do we know that well just Look at the evidence. You know, look at those look at those uh, snarling people outside of uh, southern schools as, as dignified uh, African-American children are are trying to just get past them and 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 become educated in, a, in, a, in an integrated setting. And so you see this this version of the South, the vicious South, you see it in newspapers, you see it in television news reports, um, you see it in. Uh, publications like uh, John Steinbeck's *Travels with Charlie*. Okay, part of *Travels with Charlie*. This is, by the way, is a nonfiction um, travel log that's published by by Steinbeck in 1962, in which he describes his his journey um, in search of America, as, the, as as it says in the tagline of the book. And at the end of his journey, he ventures through through the South. And you know, if he was if he was looking for America, or what he hoped America would be, he definitely did not find it in in the South because he he, he arrived in New Orleans right at the time of this um, desegregation drama, in which you had a group of, uh, kind of this infamous group of white women known as the cheerleaders, standing outside of of this new Orleans school and yelling and, and, and terrifying um, exactly. little, little black kids as they're, as they're trying to, um, as they're trying to enter the school. Oh, uh, did we drop out again?
0: Yeah, actually you keep going and recording. I, I'm getting called away by an emergency real fast. So,
1: oh, okay. Okay. You, you
0: just keep talking. You finish out chapter one. I'm going to chop the part where I interrupt you. Okay. And there might be a little bit of silence. Sit tight. I should be back quick. Okay. Okay. No problem. Okay. Thank you.
1: Now another place, another place that the vicious South narrative is, is present, and even more famously, and even more widely read, is in *Travels with Charlie*. Uh, rather than than *In Travels in Charlie*, is with um, *And In Harper Leaves to Kill a Mockingbird*. So this is a book that um, actually, um, Zeb, okay, cut cut this part out because I I messed I messed up. Yeah, yeah. In, the uh, to kill a Mockingbird is not part of the, uh, the Vicious South. So that's that's the, that's an encapsulation of the Vicious South. Now another aspect or another narrative that's being told about the South or the White South during the Civil Rights Era is that of the Changing South. Okay, this is a hopeful narrative. Okay, so this says, all right, the South that has racial troubles, it has race racial problems, and it's, you know, uh, the fault of, of white Southerners, okay? And, of course, there is a lot of truth to to these narratives. And I don't mean to say, oh, well, you know, the vicious South was portraying white Southerners just really unfairly. I mean, you know, just it was a bunch of racists. So it's like, well, there were a lot of racists in the South, and they, you know, did a lot of terrible things. And so there obviously is, is truth to to all of these, these, these images. It's just the way that they're deployed and the way that the... Uh, uh, yeah, the the, the the way that they're utilized that 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 makes them meaningful. So in the change with the changing South, there's also some truth to it. There's this idea that the South is in transition. So the South has racial problems. Okay, bigoted white Southerners are um, you know in need of change, but there are glimmers of hope that they may be already changing. That the South may be already on its way to rehabilitating itself uh, in terms of its race relations. Okay, so this. This changing South is really primarily a story of a white awakening and that that awakening or that changing South is most visible uh, in Harper Lee's book, To Kill a Mockingbird. It comes out in 1960, right? When the, you know, around the time when the, you know, the the lunch counter sit-ins and Greensboro were happening and, and, you know, the 60 civil rights movement just, you know, kicks off into, into high gear. And, Atticus Finch is the main character in that book, and he is, you know, famous uh, in the, you know, in his in his town, his little Alabama town, and he will become famous in popular culture for, in the book, defending this wrongfully accused uh, black man, Tom Robinson, um, defending him from a rape charge, from raping a um, a white uh, girl uh, by the name of Mayella Yule. and Atticus is unable to 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 get Tom off of the charge. Okay. So Tom is sent to prison. Tom is uh, shot while he uh, runs uh, for defense in a possible, you know, kind of suicide. Um, it's not exactly clear what, what happened, but the Atticus Finch character is the reformed Southerner, or at the very least a reforming Southerner. This is a guy who at worst is a moderate on, on racial matters. Um, in the book, he's as, as Joe Crispino has argued in, in, in his recent book about Atticus Finch. In the book, he's more of a moderate. In the film, he's more of a liberal. Uh, you know, so there. I don't want to, you know, kind of um, get too bogged down in the, in the details. But, but in, in in a sense, he's a good Southerner. Okay, he's a good white Southerner. Um, he is if there's just and if there's enough folks like him who follow his example, the South can find its way out of its racial dilemma, and kind of the most extreme version of the changing South narrative is advanced by people like, you know, Walker Percy, the not famed novelist you know, from the South who, you know, makes the case um, that, you know, it's possible that the, the South even will have uh, lessons for the nation to, to teach or will have lessons for the, for the nation um, to, um, uh, to, to learn um, regarding the issue of race, which is kind of a remarkable statement for a white Southerner to, to be making in 1965, <laughs> you know, and, um, so that's, that's the changing South, the, the South on the Mint. And then you have, finally, the third version of the White South, and that's the down-home South. This is the South of the Beverly Hillbillies and the South of, uh, of the Andy Griffith Show, the town of Mayberry. Okay, so this is a, a South that plays out a lot on television sitcoms. And so in the book, I describe, in particular, those two programs, which, you know, spend a good amount of time, you know, with some kind of, Good-natured ribbing at the expense of, of their of their characters, but it is a show that time and time again makes the argument that the rural or small town values of the the white southerners on these shows is superior to the kind of modernistic technocratic acquisitive spirit of um of 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 of, mo- of otherwise you know everyday uh, Americans. Okay, so kind of the classic. Uh, treatment of this on the Andy Griffith show um, comes in an episode 1963 episode called man in a hurry. And in man in a hurry, you have a gentleman from Charlotte. Okay. So he's, he's a southerner, but he, you know, he's from the big city, you know, so essentially he's been Northernized because he's, he's, he lives in this this big urban center and he comes in Mayberry and his car breaks down and he's just trying to get out of there, you know, and get his, and get his car fixed as, as quickly as possible. And he gets so frustrated because of the, you know, the Maybarians, you know, they, they, they live this very slow pace of life and, you know, they're just dragging the process out and he just cannot wait to get out of there. And he's getting so frustrated and, you know, he, he learns, you know, over the course of the episode to slow down and kind of relax and enjoy, you know, enjoy the rhythms of, of small town Southern life. And to really kind of recognize in some ways, the superiority of that way of life. And so he, he falls asleep at the end of the episode, having, you know, just spent, um, you know, time, uh, you know, just whittling and, and peeling an apple, you know? So he's, he's gotten in touch with the kind of the, the small town Southern spirit. And so the down home South, is, is, you know, is, is an intensely positive version of, of, of southerness um, and a white southernness, And it's, you know, very much opposed to, to the vicious South narrative. So it's saying that it's not even saying that southerners need to change. It's saying that white southerners are good as they are. And in fact, in many ways, their values are superior to those of, of non-southerners and those who are, you know, so focused on kind of the, the everyday um, needs of the workaday modern world mm.
0: now in your second chapter we get to move into some interesting material and this was one i enjoyed a lot because i like country rock a fair bit but this is how counterculture and the rest of america is now is now looking at the south and then on, superficially it's this sort of improbable meeting though so, you know you complicate that somewhat what's going on there
1: it, it is kind. Of, it is in some ways an, an improbable meeting, and so I, I'm, I'm interested in the countercultural perception, the hippie perception, of, of white southernness, and so I'm using music as a, as a way to try to get at that. Now, there's a, there's a lot of refract, kind of um, refractions, I guess you know, would be the right word, going on here. So it's not as if hippies are, you know, um, encountering white southerners directly so much, rather they're 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 encountering it through their music but it's not you know the music that's traditionally associated with the white south being country music exactly although there are a lot of you know hippies who are you know really into uh johnny cash and really into you know even even merle haggard um despite, you know oki from muskogee or sometimes maybe in, because of it um if they think that they think that uh, you know Haggard's kind of in on the joke or something, but which I think he probably was um, mm. to a large extent. But be be that as it may, they're they're actually encountering it largely through kind of a hippie version of of country music, which is which is country rock. Okay, so country rock is, is difficult to to define. You know, it has all kinds of different <laughs> different meanings as I as I lay out in, in, in the chapter. But basically, it's it's long haired musicians. Mostly from a rock and roll background, playing country music, and so in the nineteen sixties, you get a whole bunch of groups who who are doing this. You know, you have the folk rock uh, group, very popular folk rock group, the Birds. You know, they start to play country music, or in fact, they they just they kind of devote whole albums to country music. They had dabbled in country music for for a number of years, actually, uh, Bob Dylan famously will go to Nashville in 1966 and, and record tracks for for Blonde on Blonde, which is not a country uh, or a country rock album. But the album that he records in 1969 called Nashville Skyline very much is um, a, you know, a, a low key, very twangy uh, country album, you know, very low stakes. You know, he's not singing about, you know, themes of war and, um, you know, he's not, he's not, you know, doing blowing on, blowing in the wind or masters of war on that. I mean, he's, he's, uh, you know, he's, he's singing, uh, you know, very low key tracks. Like I threw it all away, you know, great, good music, but, um, just, you know, not the, not the kind of stakes that, that he was, um, creating, I think in some of his earlier folk and folk rock recordings. I mean, in some ways, you know, the countercultural interest in country music, is not, as surprising as it may seem at first glance, because after all, these were people who, um, you know, had been and probably still were to some extent into folk music. Um, you know, they liked blues. Maybe they liked blues rock more, but they liked blues music, and so it just kind of made sense that they would kind of complete the the musical triumvirate of of southern roots music and just add flat out country music in, into that, into that equation. And it's a very specific version of, of country music. It's not the Nashville sound, which is a highly orchestrated, uh, very poppy uh, version of country music. That's, that's created in the, in the, in the 1960s by people like uh, Chet Atkins in, in Nashville as a way to uh, appeal to a larger swath of Americans than, you know, the kind of the, uh, what the, the, uh, scholar Richard Pearson would describe as like hardcore country music. You know, that's like Merle Haggard, that's Hank Williams, you know, that's, um, uh, you know, Johnny Cash, you know, Mm -hmm. guys who aren't putting strings on their albums, not making them syrupy, you know, they're they're tough, you know, it's tough music, you know, even, even uh, like like Loretta Lynn, I mean, she would fall largely into that kind of hardcore uh, Mm -hmm. category. So it's not all just men, but um, so they, so they, they, they're drawing on that music. They're also drawing on a version of southern country music that's happening in Bakersfield, California. That's being performed by people like Merle Haggard and, and Buck Owens. Okay, so they're very inspired by that. So that's a further kind of, you know, kind of distancing from the kind of the, the, the southern source of the of the music. And then, and these these country rockers are are experimenting with the, with the music. You know, if they're like Graham Parsons, they're adding you know kind of soul music in into the mix, um, and you know at first i thought counterculturalists would just be very um, strict in what they would accept you know as authentic country music you know i thought they would they would make the argument oh well if it, it has to it has to sound you know exactly like something that hank williams would have done in order for us to like it and what i found is that their interests were a little bit more you know uh, lowercase catholic in in that sense and that they were actually uh wanting musicians to kind of put their own stamp on on the music okay so not just to kind of do a carbon copy version um in fact there was one criticism of of the 1968 album uh the birds album sweetheart of the rodeo um and one countercultural reviewer uh criticized it for its academicness you know it was like it was like a it was like a school project rather than, you know, like an authentic, you know, kind of lived in lived in experience. But regardless of how, you know, hippies or their desires for how the music should should sound, they really did look upon this music as a kind of a window into into white southern culture. You know, the counterculturalists were, you know, deeply concerned about the state of modern America. You know, they were um, you know, not anti technology Per se, but they were concerned that technology had gotten in the way uh, of the ability of people to just relate to one another. You know, to get to know each other, to connect with each other on on a human level. And um, you know, they also embraced music um, as a way to kind of just kind of get beyond the the what they consider the over reliance on rationality. Mm. You know, so people like Jerry Rubin or. Um, Abby Hoffman would say, you yeah, know, it's a kind of rational thinking, that kind of technocratic thinking that got us into the Vietnam War, right? So that's, you know, is that what we want more of? You know, not necessarily. So, um, so music becomes kind of a way to, to get away from that. But um, the this, this version, it's really just a version, though, of the South. It's an imagining of the South that, that hippies are, are looking to through the music. So I don't know that they really have any... I mean, there are some hippies I talk about who do want to try to form connections with the perceived enemy, you know, of white Southerners in particular, um, or working class whites more broadly who might who are increasingly part of the country music audience by the end of the 1960s. But I think a lot of them are, are kind of like Robbie Robertson. Robbie Robertson's uh, you know uh, was the principal songwriter of. The Band, a um, group of mostly Canadians and one Arkansan, who, um, you know, came out with a with an album called The Band in 1969. It was it, not entirely, but what worked somewhat as a concept album about the South, and it presented the South in, you know, very positive terms, uh, presented a lost cause narrative even on the night they drove old, old Dixie down, and... Robbie Robertson was fascinated by white southerners he, he considered them you know very strong very persevering individuals you know um, and he created a, a music that um, you know that that, that showcased them in, in very positive terms even when they were um, enduring considerable struggles which he did write about their their struggles as well but this was somebody Robbie Robertson who said you know I like to think essentially about um, when I'm writing this kind of music about white Southerners I like to think about alone, you know, shack, you know, kind of out in the distance, out in the field somewhere, you know. And, it's, and he says something like, you know, I didn't, I don't necessarily want to go up to the shack and knock on the door, you know, but I just want to kind of imagine it, you know. <laughs> so it's like he has this investment in in an idea of the South. And then, you know, there's not necessarily a, a great inclination to really discover the reality of it. And I think that's a theme of a lot of people, a lot of Americans who are imagining the white South, in the sixties and seventies and anyone in other times as, as, as well. Um, they don't really want to get to know the, the South. They want to, they want to use the South for whatever. Um, I mean, in some ways, selfish purpose, they, they, they desire it for. So hippies, uh, the investment in the South and their version, of the white South may seem odd at first, but the values that they ascribe to the, to the white South, you know, uh, traditionalism. Okay kind of an anti-modernity, you know, kind of a close close familial spirit. Um, you know, their embrace of, of that version of the South makes sense because it, it, it provides them with further tools um, in their fight against, you know, mainstream, modern American society.
0: And, and to what extent are some of those, especially sort of anti-urban, country-living nostalgia themes, sort of an ongoing phenomenon in American life? You know, I, I was reading this and I was struck... By the similarities, I mean, it's a, a lot of the themes are, are ones that, that get brought up in Jimmy Rogers' music in the late 20s and uh-huh. late 30s, you know. The sinful nature of country living and wanting to go back to the farm and go back and see Mother. You know, there's so many Southern songs, but all going back to see, you know, your elderly mother. Are there Price. continuities there?
1: I, yeah, there's, there definitely are. There definitely are. And, um, and, you know, I make the case in the introduction, too. You know, these are, yeah, these are uh, in many ways continuations on, on some of these earlier matchings. So yeah, Jimmy Rogers is a great example. I also talk about, you know, the Nashville agrarians who in the 1930s write this book called, you know, I'll take my stand. And it's a, it's a stand against what they consider industrialism, you know, kind of modernity. And so they, they, they see the South as as beginning to undergo a transformation to become more modernized economically speaking, and in some ways socially, and they reject it. And they say, you know, the core of the South and again, they're like kind of people, you know. I guess really prior to the 1970s, when they say the South, they refer to Southerners. They're talking about the White South, and they say you know the kind of the core of the South is an agrarian lifestyle. It's where all of the all of the best of the South uh, emerges from. It's the it's a source of Southern virtue. Okay, and so to destroy that is to destroy the the true essence of everything that is good mm-hmm. about about the South. So that's obviously you know playing out. In the in the 1960s uh, uh, and 70s as well I mean to to not to oversimplify but but almost any positive imagining throughout American history of the south and white Southerners in particular in some ways is is deployed in service of a critique of 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 some aspect of, of modernism or, or, or modernity, you know, so that's a kind of, that's kind of a through line. I think what's going on that's different in the 1960s and why I think it's an interesting moment to kind of check in on these imaginings of the South is, you know, just the, the fact that the racial order, not just in the South, but in the nation is just, it's just so much in flux. And, you know, I think because there is a somewhat of a viable argument to be made, that the South is undergoing racial reform. You know, one of the, one of the, the major drawbacks to, if you were somewhat of a, you know, fair, somewhat racially liberal perspective or racially moderate perspective of the nation, one of the, the, the real um, sticking points that would have prevented you from just kind of wholeheartedly embracing aspects of Southern culture is just the racist, you know, the, the racist aspects of that culture. Well, now when it seemed that, you know, maybe the South was on the mend, Or uh, when Americans became kind of confronted, Americans outside of the South became increasingly confronted with their own racial problems, you know, once Watts happens in in 65, the Watts riots, once a series of race riots break out in the late 1960s, I mean, clearly, as scholars have recently shown, I mean, there were, you know, myriad racial problems, and there were movements for civil rights throughout the North, you know, um, well before this era, but The way it's reported at the time, it's as if northerners, white northerners are all of a sudden, you know, discovering they got these these racial problems. I think that kind of takes a lot of the heat off of the off of the South, off the white South, and it opens it up to um, make it more of a candidate for a, um, you know, a more wholehearted embrace. Um, So that's 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 a big difference. Also, another thing that's interesting about the South during this period is that it is becoming increasingly Integrated into the nation both economically and politically, but at the same time, as the South is perceived to becoming more like the rest of America, um, it's still seen as as somehow culturally distinct. So even though you have that kind of that almost constant drumbeat of a concern about oh is the South is it is it losing its distinctiveness you know um, it, it, there's a at least a, in an imagined sense uh, you know Americans still. You know, con, are you know considering the, the South just as um, just a just a, just a strong a as strong and a cultural construct as 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 ever? Even though kind of all you know some of the other key trends politically and economically would suggest that the South is losing its distinctiveness as a as a as a cultural thing, though as something that's um, you know somehow culturally separate from the rest of the nation. It very much seems to be, you know, kind of hanging on to that. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that's why the 60s and the 70s is important to talk about that um, this, uh, th- these these imaginings, even if they do have, um, you know, some similarities between earlier ones and, and later ones, because it is such a such a moment of transition, not only in America at large, but within within the South itself. Mm-hmm.
0: Now your third chapter, and we've talked a lot about race up until now, but your third chapter takes it in sort of a different direction, and this is much more aimed at masculinity. And it too, it picks one real life figure and one and one semi fictional. You look at George Wallace, and then the movie Walking Tall. Tell us a little bit about that.
1: Right. So I look at um, yes, I look at this this uh, version of the South that I call the the masculine South. So so it's it's kind of a. You know, it's in some ways it functions as kind of a, a separate, uh, you know, narrative about, about the South. In some ways, it's kind of a subset. Uh, at least as, as George Wallace uses it, it's kind of a subset of the vicious South. So, you know, I've talked mainly about how the vicious South is, is you know, a version of of the region which you know Americans, largely from outside of the region, you know, look negatively upon. The South is just kind of you know this racist wasteland that just a bunch of violent people and we want to have you know nothing to do with them. Okay, well Wallace kind of turns that on its head. You know Wallace running as a as a segregationist in nineteen sixty eight for pres for the presidency. Yeah, I mean he's he's obviously not shying away from from his own racism or from the racism of the region in which he in which he he hails from, um, but. He says, you know, that's a positive thing, you know. So he will look at, you know, the race riots that are happening in American society in the late 1960s. And, you know, he'll say to a packed audience at Madison Square Garden during the 68 campaign, you know, uh, you know, basically, you know, we, we, know how to, we know how to handle race relations in, in the South. So if there's a if, – if somebody gets out of hand, if somebody tries to riot – you know, and when he says somebody or he says they, you know, he's, he's talking about African Americans. It's clear to his audience. It's clear to everybody, even though he doesn't use use the term. Uh, but he says, when somebody gets out of hand, you know, what what do, you know? And they they pick up a brick, you know, what do you do? Well, and I'm paraphrasing someone, but he says, you know, you put a bowl in their brain, and then you ask the next one, uh, "All right, go ahead, pick up a brick," you know. So there is this kind of viciousness, you know, to this, this uh, image of the South as, as the masculine South. I start off this chapter to kind of give you a little bit more background. I started this, this chapter with uh, a discussion of um, Lester Bangs. Okay. And Lester Bangs was a, is a, you know, kind of famed, you know, journalist, the, um, you know, uh, Admired by hipsters around the world, you know, as like one of the great, you know, kind of rock journalists of the nineteen of the nineteen seventies. Uh, and um, and Lester Bangs was uh, sitting in a bar in Macon, Georgia, in um, I guess kind of mid in the mid nineteen seventies, and he overheard a bar of one of the bar patrons um, say this phrase. It's one of these southern patrons, and um, he said this phrase. You know, seemed to encapsulate, according to Bangs, you know, kind of the attitude of the South. And the phrase was. Win in doubt, kick ass. Okay, and so I use this use this this phrase "win in doubt, kick ass" to uh, you know as uh, to discuss the masculine South because essentially that's what that's what Wallace is all about. He's a he's about a politics of um, uh, racial backlash that is about literally kicking the ass of asses of um, not just and it's not just about race. It's it's, it's not just about you know. Beating down uh, black protesters or or, or uh, African Americans engaged in in urban uprisings. It's about you know beating beating back you know the demands of feminists in the late sixties early seventies. About you know beating back the demands of anti war protesters. Okay, and so Wallace is somebody who describes himself as a professional southerner. You know, and I've never. I never quite fully grasped like what he means by that, but what it what it means to me is that he is just somebody who you know he is inseparable. His southerness is inseparable from from him, you know. So that any kind of solutions that Wallace proposes, they all kind of stem from his own experience as a southerner. Okay, so he constantly talks about you know how to how do you you know keep. You know, America, you know, in, in, in protesters, you know, in check, you know, how do we prevent America from getting out of control or it's already out of control, he would say. How do we get it back under control? And, you know, he's, he proposes largely that we use violence and he, and, he, and he constantly invokes, you know, how we do things down south, you know. Um, yeah, we beat up protesters. We shoot them, you know, if, if necessary. That's how we do things in the south. You know, he says, if we really want to solve. The problems in this country, you know, all, all we got to do is just, you know, kind of, uh, you know, set loose a bunch of uh, Birmingham steel workers with about a 10th grade education on the problem, you know, um, you know, they won't they won't be so genteel, he says, you know, when, when dealing with racial disturbances, right. So yeah, so. The the violence that Wallace proposes as the solution for the unrest in late sixties early seventies America, it's 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 a kind of a southern what he would identify as kind of a southern style approach. Now, along with that, you have um, a film that comes out in nineteen seventy three called Walking Tall, and it's it's a you know it's a low budget film. It is uh, it does very well on the drive in circuit, okay. Um, but it's seen. It makes it's a very profitable movie, and so the, the the popular culture that I that I choose for this that I've chosen for the for the book, I mean it's it's not obscure stuff. You know, it's it's things that that a, that a lot of Americans would have seen that was you know widely reviewed um, and and understood to be somehow important to the culture at the time. Now, on the face of it, Walking Tall, which is a fictionalized account of or I guess you know kind of, I guess the way to put it it's a based upon a true story account of this guy named Buford Pusser who was a, a sheriff in the county of uh, McNary in Tennessee in the 1960s and Buford Pusser was a former wrestler known as Buford the Bull, and he comes back home in the at the start of the film and he goes back to work on his uh, father's farm so here he is you know kind of you know participating in the virtues of, of rural Uh, rural southern living, okay, near a small town, okay, but this is not Mayberry that he lives next to, right, so this is a, this is a town that is ruled by vice lords, okay, so um, early in the film, he and a buddy go to this, uh, this place called uh, uh, the Lucky Spot, which it will prove to be not so lucky for, for Buford, um, as he's, uh, as he's, as he's beaten up there, and he's left for dead on the side of the road, um, when he uh, when he when he goes in the back room and, and engages in a, in, a, in a game of uh, a game of chance in legal game of chance so uh, so pusser eventually is beaten up he runs for sheriff and he sets upon to root out vice okay to get rid of you know the prostitution the you know illegal gambling um, you know everything that is that has come to this town all right so you know Buford Pusser, the character is in many ways kind of Wallace-like. You know, he criticizes judges, you know, who who seem too caught up on the intricacies of of, of the law. You know, who who seemingly want to are more interested in protecting uh, protecting the the rights of um, of criminals than they are in protecting you know the lives of the innocent who might be hurt by these criminals. And so, you know, he's he's very outspoken. He does things that you wouldn't, you know, expect law enforcement to do, or, or think that they maybe should do. You know, for example, there's a there's a cop that that's been, you know, I guess, you know, kind of uh, in some ways, kind of collaborating, or you know, um, uh, letting the uh, the vice lords kind of have their way. Um, well, Buford Pusser, you know. Uh, Threatens to dynamite that cop, okay, rather than (laughs) if he doesn't give him some vital information. So he seems very Wallace-like in the sense that you know he's willing to do whatever it takes, whether or not civil liberties are being violated, in order to accomplish it. But what's very different from Wallace is that Pusser—he's a tough guy, okay. He's all about kicking ass, but he uh, has—he's—he's—he's a relatively speaking, he's racially egalitarian, okay. So he has a black deputy who he treats with dignity okay but still he kind of there's a there's an element of racial paternalism within that relationship okay but you wouldn't call him a racist in the way that you would that you would george that you would george waltz okay um so yeah so that's kind of that masculine south toughness the south as a um uh, the white south in particular as this um this idea or this kind of um place in the mind in which Americans can go if they're feeling like, oh, you know, society, it's kind of being it's being sapped of its of its vigor. It's being sapped of its manliness. You know, there's all these publications in the 1970s that that suggest that, you know, American masculinity is waning. Okay. It's the it's the era of the of the um of the kind of the androgynous, you know, singer songwriter Jackson Brown and you know Neil Young, and so the South says no, no, we're, we're gonna we're gonna pump we're gonna pump virility, we're gonna pump masculinity back into the American spirit, and so the South seems to be a place, at least in you know, the rhetoric and the campaigns of Wallace and in films like like Walking Tall that that suggests that um, yeah, masculinity is is there for the taking, is there for the tapping.
0: Now, in your fourth chapter. You actually sort of you you go back to music, but this time you're looking at southern rock. Now, how how do you construct that as distinct right. from country rock, and and how are people using southern rock to imagine the South?
1: Yeah, southern rock is 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 different. I would define it as um, as uh, music that is played first of all, by Southerners. So Southern rockers are actually people from, from the South. Now that's not to say that there weren't some country rockers like, like a Graham Parsons, you know, who, who had their origins in, in, in the South, but um, but some one's own Southern identity um, is really, is really central to, to Southern rock music. Okay. So you self identify as somebody who is from, who is from the South. And in some ways I think those musicians, feel that they are representing the South through through that music. So I think the kind of the, the stakes of identity are higher in, in Southern rock music. Also the sound of the music is is different. Although, you know, bands like Leonard Skynyrd and you know and the Almond Brothers who I focus on in that chapter do, do definitely draw on country music to varying degrees. The the basis of the of the Southern rock sound is really um, Rhythm and blues music, uh, but even more so, I would say the influence is uh, British blues rock. You know, so the the Brothers Band really is, for much of its early re- recording career, I mean, basically a, a blues band. You know, they're they're performing they're performing covers of of Muddy Waters and, and Elmore James, and 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 doing their own their own original um, kind of takes on kind of the black. Um, uh, post-war uh, Southern blues sound. Um, Leonard Skinnerd, you know their biggest musical influence, and this is not going to be like a, a, a big a big one for most of us, but is the band Free, like Paul Rogers' uh, band before um, he did Bad Company, you know, and that so that's like this kind of very you know kind of you know uh, loud and you know kind of you know bluesy uh, rock rock and roll band. Um, so the, I think the influences are are a little bit different as well. And so the, the sound is just, it's, it's a little bit more aggressive. It, it, I mean, it sounds more like rock and roll, whereas country rock sounds more like country music. Um, you know, Greg Allman would say, I don't really understand like Southern rock. I mean, I thought, you know, basically, you know, all it's like calling, it's like calling it rock, rock, you know, rock music is from the South. So it seems like a redundancy is, is what he is, what he was getting at. And in some ways, in some ways he was right. But, um, but this kind of combination of, of British blues, rhythm and blues, and a little dash of country music, that's that's what makes the, the, the Southern rock sound. So, you know, if you want to, I mean, you know, a good, a good you know, version of that is uh, Leonard Skinner's Give Me Three Steps. You know, it's like, well, what kind of music are they drawing on? Well, it's kind of bluesy and eh, it's kind of country-ish. Um, you know, there's some R&B in there too, so it's just it's just kind of like a putting all that into a blender and mixing it up, and what comes out is this, is this very distinctive, very almost kind of paradoxically loose and tight at the at the same time.
0: Mm.
1: So those bands, you know, in particular, they're you know, I, there's a, there's many southern rock bands, you know, in the constellation of southern rock bands. But I think the two most important ones are clearly the Almond Brothers, Band and Leonard Skinner. They're also the two most commercially successful ones. Now, the Almond Brothers Band are presenting their southernness. It's 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 what I would describe as a countercultural. Southernness, So they are, you know, kind of, they, they kind of come off as hippies, you know, they're, they're long hairs. They, 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 early in their career, they live in a, in a communal environment, you know, it's like they live in a commune basically in, in, in Macon. Um, and, you know, they, they buy a farm later, later on, which they call the farm. Um, and, you know, they hang out there and they, they take kind of a lot of uh, spiritual sustenance, you know, from, from small town and, and rural settings as as well so this music that they that they that they play and is is um is and i say i would say that the 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 general kind of spirit that they convey is one of togetherness you know is, is this kind of countercultural spirit and they're also very racially progressive so they have a black man in in the band from the beginning OK, um, they have black drummer. Later, they will have a black bassist. So it's an integrated band, which is very unusual, you know, for a for a rock band. And you can say, OK, well, the Stax Studio Band, OK, Booker T and the MGs, that, that's an integrated band. But that's also that's a kind of a different kind of music. You know, so this is so, so rock and straight up kind of rock and roll band, you know, to, to be uh, integrated at that time and to, and to importantly to come from the south. That's that's a very significant Significant thing, because this is this is still in the late 1960s when this when this is happening. So I think the Allman Brothers, they could kind of present for a lot of listeners the, the, the best of the South, the best of the white South, what it can be. You know, they're drawing on that kind of changing South attitude. They're also drawing upon that down home South attitude that, that places um, a lot of value in, in rural and small town Southern life. And then on the other side, you have um, you have Leonard Skinner, you know, which which seems to be a very different group, because Leonard Skinner, you know, really kind of takes that notion of white Southern pride and just you know kind of amps it up um, on steroids, really. Um, you know, they are proud Southerners; they are unapologetic Southerners. I mean, this is a band, after all, that would really throughout its throughout its career into the last year of its of, of, the, of the life of the initial band before a, a tragic plane crash would claim the lives of, of some of its members and the and the band would would then kind of fold temporarily they would fly the the Confederate flag um, the stars and the stars and uh, well, I guess not the but really the Confederate battle flag is what they were flying um, and they would come out uh, to uh, on stage to an orchestrated version of Dixie you know they use the Confederate flag in their um in the, in the different, uh, you know, kind of, uh, merchandise that they, they sold their I think their, uh, their mascot was, uh, you know, like a, a skull smoking a cigar, wearing a Stetson <laughs> with a Confederate, uh, neckerchief, Confederate flag neckerchief, you know? So it kind of gives you an idea of what they were, of what they were going after. But so, yeah, so it's all about unapologetic masculinity. It's, it's, you know, I, I People have very, you know, differing impressions over uh, what what Skiddard was or what their lead singer, Ronnie Van Zant what his real politics were. There's some effort to try to kind of make uh, Ronnie Van Zant into some kind of, um, you know, kind of closeted liberal, you know. Um, but, I, you know, I, I I think in many ways they were consciously or sometimes unconsciously, perhaps, you know, presenting kind of a neo-Confederate. Um, you know, worldview. Um, in part through their use of the flag, in part through their kind of sometimes mealy-mouthed embrace of of George Wallace. You know, sometimes they said, "Oh well, you know, I don't really like." I really don't like George Wallace because of what he says quote about yeah. colored people. It's what, what they said once, um, but I like the fact that he has balls. You know, so that there you go. There's the masculine South again. So it's like they're kind of speaking out of both sides of their mouth about, about, about it. Now they they did have to. Res- they weren't just like coming out and just un unprompted uh, and saying I love George Wallace. You know, um, but he <laughs> George Wallace uh, being the politician, that he did, or, or I think somebody on his staff said, Hey, there's this there's this very popular rock band that has this song about Alabama. I and mean, he was talking about the Skinner's smash hit, Sweet Home Alabama. And hey, wouldn't it be a good idea to kind of try to you know get on that train a little bit? And so Wallace, in the mid-70s, as governor of Alabama, made the members of the band uh, honorary lieutenant colonels in the, I believe, the <laughs> Alabama State Militia. But this is an honor that they, that they accepted. And this is an honor that I spoke about with um the guitarist ed king the skinner guitarist ed king you know uh, uh, many years of course after the honor was bestowed on him and you know he said that was that was something that they were proud of and that he that he and the other members of the band liked wallace because he was somebody who stood up for the average white guy in the south and that you know and 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 the idea was that they felt that that was somebody who needed standing up for because they were in many ways kind of Average white guys, you know, if you want to say that they were working class white men. And I think that they felt kind of beleaguered and to some extent, understandably so, as a result of all this kind of vicious South uh, rhetoric during the during the 60s. But, you know, but they they, this this version of southernness that they embrace, um, yeah, it does have some kind of uncomfortable parallels with um, with, um, yeah, kind of earlier. Uh, you know, white southerners saying like, "Hey, leave us alone! Like, let us take care of matters on our on our own." And um, and that you know, maybe that maybe seemed to apply to matters relating to race. It, it wasn't. It wasn't quite clear. Um, so you know, so. So, in short, the Almonds, the Almond Brothers band are kind of like the, the peace and love, you know, Southern rockers. And, um, and Skinner are kind of the, you know, kind of kick you in the teeth, you know, stomp, stomp on your neck uh, after you've fallen down, kind of, kind of Southern rockers. But the, they're all, I, I would argue, kind of united um, by this kind of, I think, general kind of discomfort with the state of American masculinity and the desire for, um, you know, men to be allowed to be men. Um, so, in in many respects, um, even though they're very different in the way they express their southernness, um, they're doing they're ex- they're expressing it in the midst of a concern about um, the feminization of, of of American society and and culture. And I think they they see themselves, you know, not necessarily consciously, but they they, they see themselves as as part of a res- or that position themselves as part of a resistance to that feminization.
0: In the book, in your fifth chapter, looking at the election of Jimmy Carter in 1976, which, uh, th- I mean, this is presenting a whole new face on the South. How does Carter manage that? And you also spend some time on Ford. How does Ford try to approach that?
1: I mean, it's tough It's tough for Carter. And I think in, s- in some ways the Carter campaign struggles with exactly how to, how to position carter as a southerner because they, they can't shy away from that it's 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 you know it's not like you know even bill clinton in 1992 couldn't couldn't escape you know the fact that he was you know in from arkansas and certainly in 1976 you know jimmy carter couldn't couldn't do that so i think he you know they're they're very kind of they're very savvy about it and so they, they settle on kind of three aspects of of, of the candidate Carter's southernness that they want to uh, promote, and in a in old but great, I still think biography of of Carter and his um, his his seventy six campaign um, it's, uh, called Jimmy Carter in Search of the Great White House. Uh, Betty Glad, the the late uh, political scientist. And I think former reporter, um, she argues that the basically the Carter campaign that really broke down his southernness into kind of three categories. It was it was region, uh, it was uh it was race, and it was religion. Okay. So the region thing is, you know, hey, Jimmy Carter comes from, you know, he's a son of the rural south, like legitimately. Like he he grows up in southern Georgia, he grows up in a little settlement. Um, on the outskirts of, of Plains, Georgia, called Archery, and his father is—you know—I mean, he's not a, a Rockefeller, you know, but he's—he's he's, the family is much better off than uh, the black sharecroppers who who you know work work for um, for for Mr. Carter for Jimmy Carter's father, and so you know, it, it's a, a kind of as, as Jimmy Carter presents it during the campaign, it's kind of a bucolic up, upbringing. You know, he says in his campaign biography, um, why not the best? Um, he says, uh, you know, our life on the I'm paraphrasing some of He says, you know, our life on the farm, you know, was much closer to, uh, uh, during the 30s, was much closer to the farm life of 2,000 years ago than it, than it was to, or it is to the farm life of today, you know, meaning 1975 when the book comes out. And it's kind of a remarkable statement, a little bit hyperbolic, but, but, but Carter is clearly trying to position himself as a as a Southerner who was you know who knows the land who grew up on the land who you know is closely connected to his family, and that that somehow you know makes him um, you know capable of being uncorrupted by you know various aspects of modern urban American life, and he uses his family a lot on the campaign trail to try to to try to help him out you know he. His mother, you know, Lillian is just like the kind of the stereotype of like kind of the sassy, like Southern matriarch, you know, she's strong, she's assertive. It's also helpful that she has a long history of, um, you know, uh, r- racial egalitarianism and. Um, and, uh, you know, he uses her to great effect on the camp trail. Even his brother, Billy, you know, who is kind of an embarrassment sometimes in, in that he drinks a lot and he tells a lot of off-color jokes and, and not very often when there's reporters nearby uh, willing to report on it. Um, he is somebody who humanizes Jimmy, who um, kind of mitigates what the journalist Larry L. King would describe as as, as uh, Jimmy's official pieties, you know, makes him seem a little bit more approachable and accessible, and so that's the region part of of Carter. He's an he's an authentic, he's authentic, right? Because he comes from this authentic, unaffected place, you know, the rural South, you know, the red the red soil of of, of Southern Georgia. So then you've got Carter um, utilizing his uh, his religion. Okay, so this is you know it's not like you know uh, no candidate for high office had ever talked about religion before but um the fact that the carter is an evangelical christian that he's a southern baptist at a time when americans are just kind of i mean certainly not evangelicals themselves but a lot of non-evangelicals non-evangel- are kind of suddenly coming to the realization that oh there's like this group of people like evangelical christians and like, what are they all about and um you know so it, it's a kind of a time of discovery of this of this uh, important subgroup in American religious life. And Carter is one of them. And Carter is somebody who um, the Ford campaign describes as wearing his religion on his sleeve. And, you know, Carter, some say he exploits his religion, you know, for political effect, for political benefit. Um, others just, I think most voters, though, um, at least according to the polling, um, they, they see it as an authentic um, representation of his, of his views. And it's obviously, it's a religion. It's a Southern Baptist religion. It stems from, from the South. He's a lifelong Christian. He had a very famously a born again kind of experience in the, in the mid sixties after he lost a, a, a very important um, gubernatorial election. And so it, 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 again, it helps to humanize Carter. It, he uses it um, to as kind of the center of his campaign, which is in very, very many, in many ways, based on, kind of morality. You know, he's the anti-Watergate candidate. You know, he says, I'll never lie to the American people. I'm going to restore dignity to the office of, of the presidency. Okay. So that, and, and there is a sense that, that Americans are picking up on this. So for those candidates or for, excuse me, excuse me, for those Americans who are concerned about the spiritual, moral state of the nation, Time magazine would, would, Find in a poll that um, that most of them supported Carter. Okay, so clearly that that message is being is being received loud and clear. And then finally, just briefly, I mean the the the, the race angle. I mean, Carter is somebody who credibly can you know uh, be viewed at worst as a as a as a moderate on race during the 1960s, and by the early 70s, he's he's clearly he's clearly um, a, a racial liberal. Okay, he says very famously, after running kind of a race-baiting Wallace-esque campaign. Um, he says in 1971, during his inaugural address uh, as as governor of Georgia, you know, the time for racial discrimination is over. Okay. A lot of the voters, a lot of his supporters felt kind of betrayed, you know, because it's like, wow, that's not the candidate that I thought I was electing. But, uh, but you know, he comes into office, he puts, you know, he, Puts up in the state house, I think. Uh, you know, a, a portrait of Martin Luther King. He hires a lot of African Americans to uh, state offices, and you know, he 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 comes off as a racial healer. And so it's kind of ironic that a white southerner, you know, runs um, on uh, you know runs on a, on a platform of being a racial healer. But Carter is a again kind of invoking this changing South idea, you know, or maybe that it's the changed South by that point. You know, I'm somebody who has who is who has, who has lived through the very trying experiences of, of civil rights. You know, I've changed, we've all changed in the South, blacks and, and whites. You know, we've come we've had a racial reckoning and we've come to something of a reconciliation. And I think that I have something that can be helpful to the rest of the nation. You know, newspapers report that, you know, perhaps you know Carter's thinking here along the lines of the the current, you know, Boston bussing crisis. You know, Southerners can you know, maybe they have a thing to a thing or two to teach, you know, white white northerners about how to how to resolve these tough mm. racial situations. I mean, it's kind of a ridiculous argument. I mean, in, in reality, but you know, but it, it is it is seen as credible by a lot of a lot of commentators and I think by by a lot of, of voters. So, so Carter is in 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 in, in many ways is like the pinnacle of these imaginings of, of the South. He's bringing it all together, right? He's bringing kind of the, the, the racial change component. He's, he's, he's coupling that with, uh, you know, the, the rural small town authentic aspect. And then, uh, and then he's adding something kind of fresh to the equation, which is, which is, his, uh his religiosity and just the depth of his religiosity. I mean, you asked like, how does the Ford campaign respond to this? I, mean, I think the Ford campaign is just really kind of at a loss, you know. I mean, to get to get advice on how to deal with Jimmy Carter's southernness, um, kind of Ford's inner circle asks uh, Betty Ford's speechwriter, who just happens to be from Tennessee. Okay, this um, uh, this uh, this woman who's who's not part of the of the Gerald Ford presidential campaign, I mean, and she actually she comes up with actually a very uh, very knowledgeable. Uh, very insightful memo in which she tells the Ford campaign, uh, well, you know, listen, I mean, Jimmy Carter, part of what his power is based in is is the idea that, you know, he's he's, he's fusing together kind of two seemingly, um, you know, um, paradoxical ideas, kind of the black and white together South, uh, as she terms it, and then the, you know, the good old boy rural South. You know, somehow he's able to combine these two things, and it becomes a, a very power, it's become a very powerful you know combination. She she argues, she thinks it's kind of BS, you know, but in in reality, but she she says that you know commentators in particular are just kind of reporting on it as if that's you know that's the truth of, that's the truth of the matter. So the Ford campaign is, is in a tricky spot because they're concerned that trying to peel off white southern voters from Carter's camp will be in some ways construed as attacking Carter's southernness. So the Ford campaign does something interesting, but in some ways kind of expected, which is to make the argument to, to white Southern voters that Jimmy Carter is, yeah, he's Southern, okay? We, uh, we acknowledge that. We acknowledge that you may be inclined to vote for him because y- you are Southern as well, Okay. So they they acknowledge kind of a southern chauvinism, even though they don't they don't use the use that term, of course. But they say, you know, but Jimmy Carter, you know, he's not really, you know, much of a southerner when it comes to his values and it comes to his political positions. So in a, in a, in, a, in, a, in an ad campaign that that features the South Carolina senator and former Dixiecrat Strom Thurmond, Thurmond will say. Uh, you know, the only thing uh, Southern about uh, Jimmy Carter is his accent, you know, when it comes to the issues, um, you know, that's, that's about it. You know, he's, he, he's a, uh, he's a liberal, you know, he's a far left liberal. Right. Um, so the Ford campaign just tries to say, you know, vote, mm-hmm. vote, not for the region, but vote for the policies. Right. And of course that they're constructing white Southernness in terms of conservatism, you know, to be white and to be Southern is to be a political conservative. You know, so that they 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 struggle to kind of come up with a with a viable strategy. And I don't they are not able to uh, fully overcome the appeal of Jimmy Carter to white Southerners um, that is based just in his region. You know, the fact that he is he is one of them. But I also argue that it's not I don't think you can just say a kind of an empty headed Southern chauvinism is the only reason that white Southerners. Do vote in increasing numbers for um, for, for Carter. Certainly, you know, in, in more white southerners voted for Carter than, than had, um, you know, than had McGovern, and it allowed him to, you know, to, to win, you know, every southern state except uh, except uh, Georgia. Um, I think it also has to do with the fact that, that they like the way that he that he presents the South. You know he presents the South in a very positive way. You know those' kind of the three categories that play Southerners and white Southerners in, in, in a very positive light. Now it is important to note that that a slight, You know, plurality of of white Southerners do end up voting for for Ford, and so it's really the the African American vote in the South that enables Carter to you know to 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 eke out a victory in a lot of in a lot of these states. But even even that is kind of a a, an amazing you know story of of a of a white Southerner convincing African Americans that here's a guy that not only will I not be racist, but I will pursue policies that will be you know, beneficial to, to you. And it's like a Harlem resident said during the campaign, you know, I, I respect a good Southern white man because he's not a hypocrite, you know? So it's like, if I, if it's, so if, if, if this guy, if the white Southern is espousing kind of racial <laughs> racially progressive policies, he's really got to mean it, you know, because to to come from that position or to arrive at that position in the 1960s and early 1970s South, like that guy probably took a lot of heat, and so there, there's a lot of respect um, for Carter by African-Americans, not just in the South, but throughout the nation that allow him to, uh, you know, to get to get a lot of uh, get a lot of support. And, of course, just real quick, you know, uh, it's obviously not just white Southerners who 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 like Carter's southernness. A lot of people from outside the South will um, identify with Carter's so-called southern values as just just kind of what the doctor ordered um, in terms of you know dealing with the so-called moral or spiritual or uh, kind of um, political decline post Watergate of, of, of America but maybe maybe this guy maybe he's a kind of a pure individual and uh, and maybe that purity comes out of his rural, racially progressive, you know, religiously committed southerners. So, yeah, so Carter brings it all together, and I just don't think the Ford campaign really had much of a chance to, to successfully undermine that without uh, without shooting themselves in the now, foot. I've and they, and they, and they, they realize have, that themselves.
0: One question I always like to ask at the end of these, what are you thinking of working on next?
1: Well, it's good that we're, I mean, it's, you know, I guess noteworthy that we're ending on Carter because I'm, I'm considering a, a project thinking hard about another project that, that continues with Carter. So really looking at at Jimmy Carter as a, as an icon, his looking at his, his imagery during the 1970s in in particular um, and thinking about the way that Carter, you know, his image, his, his contradictions embody, you know, many of the uh, concerns of, of Americans during the 1970s. So in a sense, kind of, Using Carter as a window into uh, 1970s America and the transitions that are occurring in 1970s America. So, you know, um, thinking about you know the move to uh, you know kind of a, a colorblind um, kind of racial you know uh, politics. Um, you know, thinking about um, certainly you know the the transformation of the of the South uh, economically, politically, culturally uh, during during this era. Thinking about you know the turn toward um, more of a human rights focus, but at the same time, you know, kind of a re amping up of the of the Cold War at, toward the end of toward the end of, of Carter's term, um, you know. So just um, you know, seeing uh, Carter or looking at Carter uh, as a way as a as a window into um, you know just the Americans kind of coming to terms with the transitions and the kind of fears of decline during the 1970s. So it's not a project that's going to argue that, oh, Carter was hmm. somehow a secret, secret success as a, as, a, as a president, although I think he did have some successes. It's not really, it's not really interested in that. It's, it's, a, it's an, similar to this project in the sense that it uses southernness. It uses a Southern figure to try to um, kind of tell a larger story. About um, you know what's going on in, in America uh, during during the 1970s in particular, but also beyond because I think in many uh, in many respects um, Carter is um, you know we don't typically think of the age of Carter right we think of you know the uh, the age of Roosevelt we think mm-hmm. of the age of Reagan or maybe even if you're Gil Troy thinking about the the age of Clinton but I you know I, th- I think that much of Carter's rhetoric um, and his um, The imagery associated with him, for example, you know, uh, you know, the idea of the the kind of the uh, the outsider, you know, kind of coming into into Washington and, you know, kind of shaking things up, Um, not entirely a new idea, but uh, but the idea that somehow like political inexperience. Um, is at the national level is somehow a positive and not a negative. Uh, I think we can kind of see the kind of, the, in today's culture, we can see the kind of the continued relevance of a, of a and, and, and the danger of, of, of a thought like that. Um, you know, so, so looking at Carter as, as not just a, a window into the 1970s, but in some ways looking at Carter as a, as, a, as a window into some of the political and the cultural transitions that are beginning in the 1970s, but that continue, uh, continue on uh well into you know the period that we would typically associate with uh with the age of reagan so the age of carter if if we want to term it that is kind of an overlapping kind of an overlapping period so yeah just obviously in the kind of the early stages of of kind of thinking thinking about that um, but i think that that's i think that's the next fabulous. kind of the next direction taking that I'm, the time to talk to us that today. i'm looking to pursue thank you zeb i appreciate your time